The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program. This interview was recorded in late July 2020 as part of my Black Lives Matter series and is being broadcast for the first time today on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine on August 11th, 2020. The first part of the interview is about Michael's life growing up, college, recovery, and his new life in the theater. At minute 23, we transition into Black Lives Matter and his powerful perspective. Listen up. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is T. Michael Rambo. He is a regional Emmy award-winning actor, vocalist, educator, and community organizer who has made an indelible mark in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, the Twin Cities being Minneapolis and St. Paul. He has also appeared at Carnegie Hall, as well as in Europe, South Africa, and on stage and screen. Michael's connection to UCI is that in September of 2017, he participated in the Reverend Jesse Jackson's appearance at UCI's Barclay Theater and also interviewed on this show, UCI Conversations, that day with UCI law professor Michelle Goodwin. That very interview recently was rebroadcast on KUCI as part of my Black Lives Matter series. I will never forget that day in 2017 hearing Michael's powerful singing voice speak to me about prejudice, slavery, and redemption. And I want to talk more about that during the interview. Welcome, Michael. How are you today? Kevin, I'm doing very well. I want to thank you so much for inviting me to, to return to your program and to your listening audience. But also, I want to thank you for your continued uh, programming that offers listeners and members of the community around you an opportunity to get a, a purview, a listening view of what it means to be an active participant in one's community through addressing current, contemporary, timely, and relevant issues. So you're doing the great work that needs to be done, man. I'm touched. You're very welcome, Michael. I'm a white man. You're a black man. I will say that three years ago, uh, I, I, I was woke uh, as I started to talk to black friends and acquaintances a little bit more than usual, asking them about their experience being black. And I was shocked and shaken. But at the same time, I have to say, kind of went along like everything was cool. Now I'm at the next level and I'm all ears. 
I'm very much looking forward to our discussion today. So, great. Um, it's great to have you here via Zoom. Why don't we just start from the start? Where did you grow up and how did you get into the arts? I grew up as an army brat. My father was in the army, a military fellow, and my birth city is Cincinnati, Ohio. My formative years were spent in places like Los Angeles and Detroit, Chicago, and other cities, major metropolitan hubs. My father was an induction officer, so we traveled to major cities where he did his work in psychology during the course of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So that was much of my upbringing. And then my parents divorced when I was late teen and returned to Cincinnati, where my mother was also born. Went to high school in Cincinnati. I left Cincinnati in the mid-70s and went down to Texas, where I attended school at the University of Texas at Austin. My father, whose last name is Rambo, seems like natural, but that's not always the case. But my last name is Rambo, and he and his family are from a small freedman town called Rambo, Texas, which is settled by freed slaves at the turn of the century, late 1880s, 1890s. So I have a significant family of origin in the Texas area, primarily in Austin, where my grandmother's family was living, and then also in Rambo, which is near Dallas, Texas, near Marshall, Texas, which is closest to Shreveport, Louisiana, for a point of reference. It helps you kind of see that it's up in that northeast corner of the state of Texas. Mm. So um, from that standpoint, I, I spent much time in the University of Texas in the business school. I actually started my college years uh, in the University of Texas's business program, getting a degree in marketing and then a degree in finance. And I spent a significant amount of time in Austin, Texas, after graduating, working in various different areas. And sadly, my interest in pursuing illegal substances brought me to Minnesota, where I live today. And what I mean by that is that my interest in pursuing uh, those sorts of recreational sorts of things became a habit that became an addiction that became a reason for me to leave Texas and seek treatment in Minnesota, which is known as the state of 10,000 lakes and 10,000 treatment centers. So I left uh, Texas, arrived in St. Paul with a one-way ticket to St. Paul with the remarks of family and loved ones who felt that they needed to throw their hands up and put it in God's hands. If you can't make it happen, it's on you now. You got your tickets for help. And if you don't take advantage of the help, you're on your own, kiddo. And I was able to gain sobriety in 1989 and have been sober for 31 years. And my sobriety uh, allowed me to open up a gateway to another life that I'd always wanted. And that was the theater arts and the performing arts and music. So I left a business background and entertained what was always at the core of my, my spirit, which was the performing arts. So I um, have been doing that out of the cities of Twin Cities, St. Paul, Minneapolis, Minnesota, for the last 31 years, traveling across the globe, as you mentioned in my bio, about uh, my having performed from Carnegie Hall to across Europe and Africa and parts of South America, and uh, have worked with some very dynamic international talents and national talents, and sung for President Obama and President Carter and done all those things right smack dab in the Midwest of Minnesota. So I've been very blessed to have had a, a broad range of trajectory that has landed me comfortably in my own feet, you know, in my own uh, 
I think I would say that's landed me comfortably in a place of uh, of fullness and in my greater yet to be. Wow. Had you ever been in the performing arts prior to Minnesota? Not really. I, I mean, I've done some plays as many young people do in high school. I participated in in college. I did some things with the Black Student Union. I, I put on a couple of fashion shows and some other projects, but I had not done any great depth of performing. I did a little work in Austin at a place called Capital City Playhouse and Zachary Scott Theater. Just some community theater things, but nothing of any substance. And I would say substance because I'm sure for those organizations and for everyone in those productions that they were substantive, but they were not professional engagements. And so it was just more of a, an interest was pursued because I really loved doing that kind of work. So you made your way up to Minnesota and you went through treatment. And was it right away that you started getting into the arts after you went through that? It, it, it was really quite a turn because I left the treatment and uh, because I was, for all intents and purposes, I was on my own when I left treatment. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up um, living in a homeless shelter for a while and ended up living uh, with different people that I'd come to know. Mm-hmm. And then finally I got a job um, in the Skyway in downtown St. Paul, where I used to sing, selling yogurt. Have some yogurt, have a twist. How about some sprinkles? How about this? How about some yogurt? Have some yogurt today. Would you just be out front singing that? I would sing it behind the counter. Yeah. I would just make up songs. Yeah. I mean, college graduate with a significant background in in business, and here I am selling yogurt for $7.50 an hour. You know, (laughs) I was the best of a, of a situation that had humbled me to no end and had brought me to a place where I needed to restart my engines and reignite my life. Right. So I just made, made it joyful. And in doing so, one of the frequent customers was a gentleman who was the conductor of the Minnesota Opera. And he had frequently heard me singing and thought on one occasion when he visited that I would do well to audition for one of the operas that they were planning to present that year in 89, 90, that season, which was Showboat. And yeah. they very well knowing your listeners as well that Showboat has had its, its degree of controversy around some of it, its content, but it's very clear that it's a story about antebellum South and about miscegenation and a host of different topics. And there's a large contingent of African-American performers in the piece mm-hmm. that work on the levee. So I was called in to be one of those actors and I came and auditioned and I sang a song a cappella, and the conductor was at the time was pretty amazed. He said, well, you know, you, you really, you haven't studied music. I said, no, I don't read music. I've never studied music. I just uh, love singing. And he said, well, you know, try this. And they moved to the piano and they, they played a few chords of music that I sang to and then gave me a few notes to do some warm ups, And I sang a piece from, the show and it was old man river that old man river and they were like you know we'd like for you to not only be in the show but we think we'd like for you to consider being one of the understudies for the lead role of joe and i was bowled over and amazed and astonished that here i walked in off the street and was being offered a a role as an ensemble member but also as an understudy for a major role and the next thing i knew i was off to the races and i haven't turned back since 
That is an amazing story, Michael. In my notes here, as I'm just jotting down things, I'm like, Showboat, is Old Man River from that? Because I can totally, I'm like, I, I'm excited to someday get to hear your version of that wonderful, moving song. It's an all-time classic and favorite of mine. That is just an amazing story. Going from business to going into the, the stable world or unstable world of the performing arts is an amazing journey. You have a, a natural talent and you're blessed that you're using your gifts. I think it's wonderful. I'm, I, I do acknowledge that I'm very fortunate for a number of reasons. And I, I think that it's, it's, it's not lost on me what has happened for me and what has opened up by virtue of taking risks and stepping outside of my comfort zone and being willing to acknowledge that if one makes an effort and simply gives voice to the moment, that they can find a multitude of outcomes that far exceed their wildest imaginations. Mm, Wonderful. Excuse me for a moment, Michael. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer, and my guest today is T. Michael Rambo. He's an actor, activist, singer who was at UCI in 2017 as part of the Jesse Jackson appearance, and I wanted to take this opportunity to invite him back on the show just to talk to him. He's from Minneapolis, so I think he's going to have a lot to say. Michael, why don't we just revisit it in 2017 when you came here? I understand that there was a little bit more to just the Jesse Jackson event that day. Can you describe it for us? I do want to circle back real quick just to kind of clarify. I live in St. Paul, not originally from Minneapolis. I currently reside here. But one would say that after 31 years and 31 winters, that I am certainly a Minnesotan, but I I still hold true to my Texas, Ohio roots. But (laughs) with regard to my being there uh, on your campus, there was a convocation that Jesse Jackson came to speak to some of the um, topics that were being addressed by one of your faculty on campus, Dr. Michelle Goodwin, who was doing a piece that dealt with reproductive rights in one of her ongoing pursuits. And so as such, she asked if I would come in and moderate and facilitate that conversation. She and I have known each other for many years, and she lived here and was at the University of Minnesota for many years. Mm. We became very uh, well acquainted and close friends and continue to be very dear friends to this day. And so my being there for that particular event was one that was an invitation by Michelle and was one that really gave me my first opportunity to meet directly one-on-one Reverend Dr. Jesse Jackson. Mm -hmm. Why don't you catch us up since 2017? Can you just tell us what you've been doing a little bit and then we'll kind of get current. Yeah, since 2017, I've had the occasion. I traveled uh, to East Africa, to Tanzania, to do some work there with a program called Peace House. I did some teaching with a friend of mine named Bruce Henry. We did some arts and some vocal and some theater work with School for Orphan Children. I have an organization that I sit on the board of directors for called Arm in Arm in Africa. That's Arm in Arm in Africa, and their work is in South Africa, where we do food distribution, early childhood development, and then hospice care and palliative hospice care for persons who are surviving and and living with and then transitioning from HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. So our work has been 20 years in existence. We just had our 20th year gala just about a week ago. So I have been to South Africa. I went there last year to do some work with the organization. I have performed a number of theater productions, more more specifically here in the Twin Cities, uh, plays like I did The Wiz, a children's, you know, the African-American story of The Wizard of Oz called The Wiz. I know The Wiz is, uh, is it correct to say it's a black take on The Wizard of Oz? Or? It, 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 to say so, that it, it was certainly uh, a re, retelling of the story. What was the role that you played? I played the Wiz. Oh, okay. <laughs> Otherwise, no, it's a it's a great take from the Wizard to the Wiz. So. That's right. Yeah. Great, so, great. Great fun. And, and what else? And so, I've um, worked uh, teaching at the University of Minnesota, where I teach theater. So I'm a, an adjunct professor there, and have been doing so for a number of years, and that's been very gratifying for me, and it's been also a way to come to a better understanding of why I do what I love and, and how young people and young adults uh, inspire, motivate, and encourage me to continue growing as an artist and as an individual. So that's some of the work that I've been uh, been blessed to be able to do since 2017, which has only been about three years now. Right. Time flies when you think about it, because uh, here we are in 2020. I spent a, a portion of 2018 kind of recovering. I was uh, in a carjacking. I was carjacked by a group of teen young young adult african-american males who um sadly uh, attacked me and pistol whipped me and, and left me in a very bad state so I was, I was out of the loop for about three to five months in 2018 mm-hmm. and i sadly um experienced something that was uh, emotionally transforming but it was physically something that i had to heal from but the the impact that it had on me left me understanding that our children uh, our children are not born aggressive violent angry human beings that our culture our society our parenting and how they are taught gives them opportunity to inhabit their bodies in different ways and the trauma that they experience comes out sideways i don't absolve the guilt or the responsibility or the ownership of those teens for their actions, and they uh, are to be held accountable. But I do acknowledge that I, as well as all of us, have a very powerful responsibility for the acts as well, because we have uh, abandoned in, in the United States the responsibility that we have been charged with to steward our children. And, and it's not to say that there's some kids that just can be can be some rotten apples. I, I'll acknowledge some kids who are just pretty rough, mm. but without putting all the ownership or the onus on us. But um, this experience that children that grow into teens, that grow into adults, doing heinous acts of violence and crime, that we are just it's accountable because we have to do legislation around education, legislation around accountability for parents who mistreat, abuse uh, our children for legislation that keeps children in prisons at the age of 14 and 15 when there are other ways of rehabilitating and helping young people, for children who are given felonies at the age of 17 for marijuana and other drug possession that impacts their life. With a felony, you've pretty much lost your ability to do almost anything. And so there's a lot of hopelessness and helplessness 
and a lot of abandon in the lives of our children. So when I had that experience, it gave me a lot of time to reflect and to realize that there's a, a great responsibility that I have to do work now more so with children. So since that time, I've worked with a program called Ujama Place and some other organizations here in the city that uh, respond directly to giving uh, second chances and expungement rights for young people and other sorts of programming that helps young offenders, and not offenders as in sex offenders, but young in people with uh, different sorts of arrest records, the chance to restart and jumpstart their lives. So it's been, it's been an interesting three years for me, I'll say. Gotcha. How is the COVID situation in your area? Well, we've done reasonably well. We don't have a statewide mask mandate, but we do have much of our business professionals are requiring masks to go into places like Target or Walmart or mm. or things of that sort, Walgreens and CVS, etc. Mm. But for the most part, we've had numbers that have started to, to diminish, mm. um, which is a good sign. Mm-hmm. We're still waiting for the governor to decide in July, July 27th to be exact, what the status is going to be for young people and the children will be able to return to schools and how that will look, what that may mean. And at the University of Minnesota, we're planning for school to return, but we haven't decided to what extent and how that's going to look either. There's a lot of stuff in flux. There are a lot of people who are seeing the impact on businesses and on their own personal lives and our own personal psyche, our spiritual psyche, our our physical and emotional selves. So a lot of people are, are struggling as they are across the country and across the planet. In terms of stage production, is that been shut down? Yep, that's that's there. That's all, folks. I feel like Porky the Pig. Yeah, we we have, as a result of what COVID has brought us, much of my livelihood, which involves being in groupings of people of 50 or more, has been kind of put on hold. So that's that's rough, but we, we're making it. Mm-hmm. Just to backstep for a moment, uh, when you teach, are you teaching acting or musical theater? Theater, I teach acting. Gotcha. Do you feel like that you have a particular style that you teach? Uh, I, I teach beginning acting. So I just mm-hmm. teach a class that's intended for students who are stepping into the, into the field. And in that beginning acting, we do a lot of stuff around ensemble building, safe space, trust, monologue and scene work and that type of thing. But I don't teach large sections on Meisner or Stanislavski or, or any of that sort of thing. But just uh, uh, just the basics, because I think the cornerstone of any fine actor is getting the, the fundamentals in place. Do you have a favorite role that over the years that you just absolutely love? Yeah. yeah, I have a number of them, but one of my favorite roles is... Uh, a piece that I did called Caroline or Change. That was the title of the production? Caroline or Change. Mm-hmm. The story of an African-American woman who lived in the 60s as a domestic in, in the home of a Jewish family at the time in the South. And her relationship with the washer, the dryer, the radio, and inanimate objects that helped her make it through each day. And these inanimate objects personified through the lives of actors who played these objects 
that she interacted with. So her life left her in the doldrums of working in a laundry room of this house and taking care of a small boy who adored her. And in the course of that, she began to kind of give life to her dryer and her washing machine. I played the dryer. So that was wow. Interesting role to take on, and it was very challenging, and the music was really powerful, and yes, it was it was really loads of fun. So that was one of my favorite roles. Another is a piece called Miss Evers Boys that went on to become an HBO miniseries that was written by David Felshu, and that's a piece about the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro, which is a, a national travesty that took place in the fifties, uh, forties, uh, and fifties. Well, it took place for over forty years. And let's see, what's another great role that I enjoyed performing? Uh, any of the August Wilson plays, I've always enjoyed doing August Wilson work. Very good. Well, just one more moment. If you are just joining us, you are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, and my guest today is T. Michael Rambo. He's talking to us about uh, his life, his career. He is a black man, I'm a white man, and at this time, we're going to talk about his story of being black. Michael, is can you tell me your experience? Yeah, can you just tell me about being black? Well, I, is I, well, I you know, I I think that that's a a curious question, um, po- as you pose it when you say, "Tell me about being black." I think that that's a that's an a curious uh, a point of entry in terms of how does one talk about living in their own skin in a culture that has never that that was built on devaluing dismissing dismantling discounting and denying the the humanness of a person based on skin color uh I don't know how to say what is it like being black. I think that being an African-American in this country has left to be alive and conscious in America as a black man is a constant state of rage. That's a quote by James Baldwin. Mm. Um, And there's something that is very rage-filled about having to walk in that duality in those different phases of code shifting and um, kind of slicing your nose or your ear off to spite your face, to be accepted, to be acknowledged, to be affirmed. There are so many parts of that that question that leave me feeling um, like there's not a real answer to that. Really, I think that if you were to ask me what some of my experiences have been, or yeah. you know, or what um, something that that asked, what was it like growing up in 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 Texas um, as an African American, or those sorts of things? And when I think about it, I, I remember um, what is the story for so many Black women and men in this country being. Um, denied opportunities, being looked at differently, being uh, perceived as threatening or angry, being perceived as being um, 
a villain, a bad guy, a convict, a thief. Um, but by that same token, being seen as an astronaut, a president, a attorney, um, an attorney general, um, a Supreme Court justice. There's so many uh, parts of that conversation that uh, are perplexing. And so um, I can only say for myself, Black people are not monolithic. We are not one person. We are not the board. We are not the board. We don't exist as um, one entity, and all operate from that mindset. Uh, so uh, it's just my very personal life and the journeys that I've had. But I've been blessed and very fortunate to live a, a, above the waterline, not fully on ground, but above the waterline for most of my most of my life. And so many of my brothers and sisters have been submerged with only opportunities to poke their head up, gasping for bits of air in a, in a tide and a, a flowing water that crashes us against rock and, and sand and jagged edge, only to go back out with the tide and having to figure out how to swim back into shore and being pushed back out again. It's a it's a very um, challenging life, but I wouldn't want any other life because it's so rich and so beautiful and so filled with color and truth and light and love and purpose and possibility. But um, it requires that the person living in my skin or living in the skin that is black or brown or indigenous um, to be resilient and persistent and and steadfast and earnest and um, seeking truth on their own authentic level, to be able to live fully in your own skin is um, one of the greatest gifts any human being can be given or receive. Um, so being Black in America can be a, a beautiful tool, a beautiful experience of gladness. And so uh, I, I, um, I can't really say much more, but I certainly welcome any other questions you might have. Thank you. Perhaps, is there an experience that you had when you were young, maybe your first recognition of uh, something was a little different here? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I was sheltered by my parents for much of my life. I remember growing up traveling in the early 60s. We would travel from Cincinnati to Texas or to California in those station wagons with the, mm -hmm. the sat facing out toward the traffic coming your way and the, the, right. the little area in between the two seats, which was that little trough to where you would sit. And I would sit there as a small young boy riding with my family members, frequently three adults in a car, my grandfather, my mother, my father, or my aunt would ride with the kids and we would all pile in and uh, we would have baskets and blankets, baskets of food and snacks and treats. And we would stop along the roadway and we'd scurry out into the woods to use the bathroom and we'd make a blanket and eat a lot of 
tied with all the things that we had in our basket of eats. And I just thought that was the most amazing thing, beautiful it was that my parents um, made it possible for us to take these trips and we could spend time along the roadway only to discover later in life that it was because we had no places to go. There were no restaurants. There were no places that accepted African-Americans that were safe you know, throughout the South. So this was really not about our particular idiosyncratic family of origin um, admiration for Parkside venues. It was because there was no place to go. And, and when I came to realize that, that's what really empowered me uh, and really, really put me, um, I won't say empowered me, but it really brought me to a greater understanding that there was something inherently wrong with how this culture uh, acknowledged my blackness. So those were some of the early memories. And I mean, I think that the stories go on for so many uh, around being called the N-word or being told by children's parents that you were playing with that they shouldn't play with you. You know, I think that church, like the lunchroom, is the most segregated hour uh, in the country. And so the, our, our lunchroom behavior kind of taught me early on that there was something about why we sat in one part of the lunchroom and, and white sat in another. And those who found themselves in the middle ground were the occasional white friend or the occasional white who had a black friend. We were an anomaly that were looked upon and frowned upon and were hurled names by either side of the group, you know, an in-lover or an Uncle Tom, depending upon which side of the fence you sat on. You know, so there, there were a lot of things that I saw that told me the story. It wasn't hard to see it. The um, circumstances that led to George Floyd's murder, mm-hmm. that just an example of the prevalent culture? Well, I mean, I, I think that for any listener, I think that's, a, that's, and I don't, please don't mishear me when I say that, that speaks to the obvious that yes, it is prevalent. It is, it is an outpour of, of systemic racism. It's an outpour of uh, an industrial prison complex. It's an outpour of centuries, centuries of uh, being uh, vilified and stereotyped and categorized by a power structure that it was designed specifically to keep a particular race of people on their knees and with foot on neck. So the, the foot of white men and white America has been on the neck of black people for centuries in varying degrees. We just happened to see in 2020 that one white man was caught videotaped in the act of doing it at a time when we thought it surely couldn't be happening still. And it reminded America of its ugly truth. And it appalled some. It outraged others. And it left others thinking, what's the problem with that? So I think that, uh, yes, it, it, it was indicative and a clear indication of what is wrong with our culture and what we're trying to make right today. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations 
on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is T. Michael Rambo, actor, powerful, beautiful singer, and remarkable human being, talking about Black Lives Matter. Now back to our conversation. Uh, around the time that I met you three years ago, I, I had no clue what white privilege was. And it, it was around that time that I actually was like, I've never even considered some of the experiences and situations that I heard about. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. You can read about, you know, you read about stories and, you know, I, I think part of white privilege is carp, is it carp, carp, what's that carp word? Carp blanche. Or no, carpentalizing, carpentalizing. Compartmentalization. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, oh, wow, okay, I get it. And then you sort of put it on the shelf, like it's a, like a little box or something. Like, oh. Well, you know, I, Kevin, I, I want to put something in context as an effort to offer you a thought on that. Why would one even consider white privilege if you have privilege? <laughs> yeah. When you when you when you live in a space of privilege of occupying space in a way that gives you carte blanche an opportunity to experience everything without any with impunity, without any uh, reservation, without any sense of being denied, um, unless your compassion and empathy and others who look like you call you on what is happening within your community, your culture. It's like saying to someone that always has cornflakes for breakfast. Well, what do you mean? Cornflakes aren't for everybody. I, I mean, I have them. Surely that's, that's just the way it is. I mean, that's who, what, why would I want, less than what I get. I mean, it's just, it's just part of the human condition and human nature to, to want the most, to want the best for themselves. But when a, when, a, when a culture through its own constitution and through its own bylaws initially starting in well before 1776, never considered black folks anything more than three-fifths of a human being, then, then how can you think any differently of someone that was always perceived as less than human. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not an indictment toward you or any one of your listeners specifically. It's just the, the God honest truth of how the culture, the country was devised and, and looked at black bodies and brown bodies. And so in, in that is a truth that has to be reckoned with and has to be, uh, brought to bear and, and needs to be dissolved and needs to be um, put to rest yeah. in a way that allows all people to be seen as whole, full human beings. Right. Uh, you're very, um, you know, um, gracious in uh, 
giving, giving me space. And um, the fact of the matter is, which is part of the word I want to say is guilt, but it's not, I don't think it's guilt in terms of it's like, yeah, you know, the, the fact of the matter is I like the privilege, which I think is saying what you, you know, like unconsciously, like when I start to hear about um, diversity and inclusion and then, And then we start to talk about affirmative action, which I've actually always been supportive of. You know, it comes and goes, but the concept makes sense to me. But I I have a visceral reaction like, well, hold it. That that means I don't get to be in the front of the line anymore. (laughs) And uh, I think, I I don't know. Do, Do you have a, you speak so graciously. Is is there a way? Do you have anything to say? But yeah, actually, yeah, you don't. <laughs> if, well, if you're going to be equal, if you're going to be equal, you don't. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is that guilt is of no use yeah. if you're not acting. Mm-hmm. If you're not putting your privilege to action by trying to rectify a situation that uh, needs reckoning and rectifying. Mm-hmm. So to speak about guilt, I think, is is, a, is an easy cop-out. Mm-hmm. One can rest in guilt and do nothing mm-hmm. and continue to have cornflakes. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the, the real take on, on, on white privilege or on the conversation that you've taken us down here in, in a with so little time at our disposal is that white bodies need to talk to other whites and dismantle this conversation and, and tease it apart and detach the guilt and all of the other nuances around it and say, oh, we created it. We got to solve it. Mm-hmm. Black folks didn't create racism. We, we 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 weren't in a position to create this this mess. It's a mess. So in, unless white bodies decide that they want to be accomplices, we don't need allies. Allies sit side by side and can watch from the outside looking in and go back to the comfort the comfort of their lives. We need people who are going to be accomplices, who recognize that there is meat and skin in the game, and there is a accountability that comes with it, and that. Just like if you're in it to win it, you get the fruits of those labors and you get the bad stuff that comes with it if you don't do it right. You know, so it, it is time for white America to go back and look at itself through a very clear lens of truth. And it's time for black America to look at itself and try to figure out what we are going to do as a community, as a culture, to ensure that we keep your feet to the fire and our feet on the prize or our eyes on the prize. Mm-hmm. And the prize is that, that part of this culture that is and should be and deserves to be part of our own life experiences as a community, as a culture, as a people. And this is something that can happen, but it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of work. And I don't know that dismantling it like the conversations around dismantling police forces and that sort of thing, if that's 
something that we're going to be able to see in my lifetime. But it's certainly something to push toward and to, and to move toward and to work toward. Well, as you were speaking, one of my answers to our huge problem is, is education, education, education. Do you, do you feel that too? Is, or is that? I don't, I mean, education, education has its value if you want to learn how to add and subtract. Education has its value if you want to understand a predicate, a subject, and a noun. Education has its value if you want to know the periodic table. But when you come to talking about what we're having a conversation about now, education is of no value if people are not willing to unlearn, relearn, and learn what has not worked. And once again, take it apart. Really do the dismantling work because education... I mean, it's lofty. It's kind of like a, it's, 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 it's fluff when you say, well, we need to educate people about racism. Well, I don't know that we need to educate people about, we, we know that it's there. What we need, what, what needs to happen is that people have to be willing to call people on their behavior. You, you know, they have to be willing to say that's not a funny joke. Mm have to be willing to be uncomfortable, have to be willing to, to disturb the comfortable and, and to, to comfort the disturbed. You know, we have to find ways that are, are more significant and more substantive than what we're seeing. So education uh, with, with, without purpose or intention, I don't know. I, I think that we've tried that education thing. We need to educate. Well, um, what do we do we do does that mean we create museums of signs that say black only white only colored only white only do we take all these uh, vestiges of statues that are being torn down and and put them in a museum and say this is this is what america looks like this is what it what what it stood up to until 2020 before now these sat in parks now you see how racist this country was. I mean, you know, it's. it's I don't have that answer, but I, I know that education is kind of a buzzword and is rhetoric, and, and it, it has to. We have to reevaluate what that means, and people have to get skin in the game. As I mentioned earlier about being accomplices and not allies, and we have to really be aggravated, actualized, articulate, assertive people who are assaulting a structure that has not served us well. All of us. We all, we, we all are paying the price of it. Even if you're living in white privilege, you're still living, paying the price because the fact that our nation's productivity is paying the price. The fact that black men and women, black, brown, indigenous, and other people of color are not getting equal wage, equal opportunities, equal parts of the pie already by its own acknowledgement means that white folks are suffering. They're suffering. You're suffering. You're, you're, you're paying the price. You're not getting the best part of American culture either. You know, so once we start seeing that from a different lens, we're going to have a problem or continue to have this problem, I should say. 
It's so it's so big. It is. It's it's it's, it's enormous. Mm-hmm. It is enormous. How could it not be for four hundred years? Yeah. I, I don't know if this is uh, taking the eye off the ball, but you know, you watch film from the sixties and when I see some of, you know, the way, you know, literally like the integration of schools of colleges and, and the vehement hatred of, of the white people toward, toward a, a nicely dressed black person just trying to go to school. I mean, what? I think you started to talk about the rage. I, I, I get the impression now, it's like that the deep rage that black men and women have, have I'm, had to tamp down, but at the same time, it's like the, 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 the patience that had to be also be be part of the mix because I don't know how else she would survive. It was such a. Well, I think um, part of the human, the narrative, the, the, at the, at the base of the human DNA is survival. Mm. So I, I think that uh, we have proven through the nature of the slave trade and and the triangular slave slave trade and the thirty, the three months of travel in the bottom of a, the hull of a slave ship, um, that the fact that we're here speaks to the power and the resilience and the perseverance of black bodies of African people, of the African diaspora. So um, I say that simply to say that there is clear indication that we have uh, a right to be here and we have a responsibility and we have a purpose that exceeds anything that I even understand totally to to myself right now today. But I I know that when you you, um, referenced what can we do or, 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 or the rage and all those, the things that I brought up earlier, um, it, it stands to reason that if in this day and time if still at just two weeks, three weeks after George Floyd to have a man in Atlanta, Georgia shot in the back from running away from an officer we've got work to do when Aubrey was shot and murdered that's what my take of it is yes he turned and and fired a non-lethal weapon in the direction of an officer who knew he took it from him who has had in his training been all shot with a taser to lit so they'll know and understand the, the power of what a taser can do and what it can how it can impact a person but it's not lethal we know that and to shoot someone in the back running away from you when that could have been certainly curbed and, and held in a different, that situation could have been resolved far differently. That we're tone deaf as a culture. Mm-hmm. We, we have the memory and the, 
and the consciousness of a postage stamp when it comes to remembering what just happened and, and how it impacts us. Until some other situation comes about, we'll continue to, you know, many people will continue to go, well, that's just, but right now it's such a, it's such a fire powder keg because so many people are tired, exhausted. And, and finally, so many white Americans, like what happened in the, in the 50s and the 60s, are saying, no more, not again. We can't do it again. And so many people are tired of seeing our, our major cities go under fire and, and go up in blaze and, and flames. So, you know, I, I think, Kevin, you brought up some great points, and I'm really, uh, really appreciative of the opportunity to kind of express and share some of, of my insights and my thoughts. But I, I think that um, more than anything, I'm very glad that you have this platform and that you take the opportunities that you have and the privilege that you have to bring people like myself and hopefully you continue to bring others who will, who will, um, that you'll bring others that will put your feet to the fire and, and that will force you to take a look at yourself and maybe you'll bring other members of your community, other whites, men and women to talk about white privilege as a topic on your program to have a conversation and and have some very pointed, some very thoughtful questions posed for, for yourselves and for your listeners about that. You know, but um, today I've, I've really feel good about where we've gone. Good, good in the sense that I, I think that's really opened up uh, a portal for conversation. And that's something that, that radio and the media is so important for and, invaluable invaluable because it it opens up a pathway for conversation for looking at oneself under a lens that they may not that we may not otherwise see ourselves so i really thank you for giving me a chance to be on your program and to share some of my thoughts and and i hope to be back out there i would love to return your campus is beautiful your city is beautiful and and i really uh, enjoyed myself immensely while there Please, if you ever make it out our way again, please let me know. Thank you very much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you, Kevin. Be safe. Take care. Thank you again to T. Michael Rambo for taking the time to discuss his life and the Black Lives Matter issue from his own personal experience. I am grateful. The conversation continues and much more will be revealed. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, wishing you well as we continue to slog our way through COVID-19. Don't forget, wear your mask and social distance. Be safe, be good, happy trails, So long, everybody.